Pierce Brosnan as a Russian agent, more Michael Caine, nuclear bomb threats, secret plots, a 7-0-0, Kim Philby, again? A mysterious voice makes an appearance, location, 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 Batman's butler, and Lalo Schifrin's music. Let's go! Hi, this is Dan and Tom of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Welcome to the debriefing room as we decode the fourth protocol released in 1987. This movie is based on the 1984 novel, The Fourth Protocol, by Frederick Forsythe. This movie is the fourth movie produced based on a Frederick Forsythe novel, and previously we saw the 1973 The Day of the Jackal, The Odessa File in 1974, and The Dogs of War in 1980, so some pretty darn good movies based on his novels. All right, first of all, we thought it would be fun to see Pierce Brosnan in a role of a very evil and brutal spy for the Russians planted in England to set off a nuclear bomb at an American airbase. Yeah, and Dan, this is one of those movies that the first time I watched it, I didn't like it. When we do these episodes, I watch the movie multiple times. I liked it much better the second time, and I don't know if it's because I knew the ending, but normally that ruins it for me going forward. But there was something about this movie that the second watch was where it really clicked for me. Yeah, there's a lot in this movie, I think, that if you you watch it casually once, you're not paying attention to. But the, the cinematography, the location shots, the angle shots and stuff, there's a lot of good stuff in it. And we have Pierce Brosnan in here before he's Bond, but here as a Russian agent. So <laughs> it's fun. The plot line is to set off this nuclear device at an American base in England that suggests that it will look like an American mistake and it will take thousands of lives and that this explosion of a nuclear bomb at an American base will make the locals want the Americans out of the UK and drive a wedge into this NATO alliance, thus strengthening Russia's world position. Hey, this kind of stuff is going on right now. And oh, absolutely. So I think this is pretty cool that in 1987 here, we've got this movie with this theme and this mission. Although in a lot of spy movies, you've got it where a country or somebody's trying to play two countries against each other. Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing here. Now, the other thing about this is that because you're talking about setting off a nuclear device, I saw an interview with Pierce Brosnan that was released in 1987 when the movie was where he talked about how that was a good time to talk about in a movie, how easy it would be to create a nuclear bomb and how topical it was at that time. Yeah, affordable. Yeah, yeah. As you just alluded, today's another perfect time to be talking about that, especially with the threats that we've seen Vladimir Putin making about, you know, deploying some nukes. So kind of a topical movie from 1987. Yeah, and really the plan here in this movie is developed by the General Secretary of the Soviet Union and a master spy, Kim Philby. Hmm, (laughs) Philby was a real spy in real life. And you could see that in a zillion documentaries. This plan is so secret. How big is a zillion, Dan? (laughs) More than a million, I think. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This plan is so secret that even the general head of the KGB and its leaders have no idea about it, only the chairman of it. So this is kind of like a Putin thing going on now where he's just pushing what he wants to do through Russia. And Yeah, and, but he's being, he's being fairly, fairly uh, obvious. 
obvious about it. We're here. This is a, a covert operation. Yeah, this is definitely a covert operation. Nobody yeah. knows about it except this general secretary of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union and this Kim Philby guy. All right. Yeah. Now I do. I actually do like it when they bring references to real people yeah. into these movies because all of these other characters, at least as far as I know, were fictitious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Kim yeah. Kim Philby was a real double agent. He right? was. Uh, and so I don't believe what happened to him in this movie is what happened to him in real life. No, definitely not. But I love the fact that we'll they bring in those references to it. And uh, it, so it's it's and he's got a very important role, but small role in this movie. Yeah. But I just I just really like how they do that tie in. So it's like, oh, this could have really. Ha- I know that name, Kim Philby. Maybe this really happened. Yeah. I and mean, this movie's got a bunch of great people in it, too. You got Michael Caine. Of course, Pierce Brosnan, as we mentioned, Ned Beatty, Joanna Cassidy, Michael Goff, Julian Glover, Ellen North, Ray McAnally. I mean, there's a ton of really, really good people in this movie. So it's definitely worth a watch. There are some twists and turns to the story. And Michael Caine, as John Preston, is working for British intelligence for a boss who is trying to take over for an alien for an alien boss not an alien boss from another planet but an ailing boss ailing boss <laughs> he's sick <laughs> he's sick <laughs> yeah. and this new boss does not like john preston as he is more or less a rebel agent who does what he thinks he needs to do regardless of authorization well boy that sounds a little familiar <laughs> and this becomes clearer and clearer throughout the movie and this this is 22 years after his debut as harry palmer in the ipcris file so he's kind of like playing the same guy and he is <laughs> you know i had the same thought watching this thing i mean he's very very similar situation here yeah at work in both of these movies his insubordination is very similar to Palmer. Yeah, Michael yeah. Caine plays this type of role very well. There are definitely some differences between the characters, yes. yeah. but if you're a Michael Caine fan, this is going to make you feel at home. Yeah, and one of the differences is he has a son here, and Preston performs the safe cracking at the beginning of the movie to get the goods on one of his own, one of their own guys, a guy named Berenson, who was leaking NATO papers to South Africa, as it turns out. But Berenson had a contact, a Jan Mare, who turns out, unbeknownst to Berenson, is a Russian agent. All right. So they're setting us up neatly, I thought, in the beginning, seeing this safe-cracking business going on and so on. So, Well, actually, you know, one of the things about that safe-cracking that happens in this thing is we talked about them in The Man Who Knew Too Much mm-hmm. by Hitchcock. In both of those movies, the the climactic noise was timed to a, to something that happened in the orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, a, and a loud, you know, you know, you know, the cymbal crash or whatever. Here, he times the explosion to what looks like Big Ben. I don't know if it is yeah. chiming midnight for New Year's Eve. So it's a similar thing where you're going to have a distraction because everybody's going to be hearing the clock tower, you know, chiming. Yeah. And uh, you know, obscuring the explo- the sound of the explosion. Yeah. Plus, he had that water bag over it to help diffuse the sound too, which was kind of cool. Yeah. All right. So this guy Berenson is to continue working with his Russian contact. Only now, the British intelligence will be supplying the papers. Yeah, that's a, right. that's a, so well done when they yeah. confront Berenson. I mean, that's that scene. 
it's worth seeing the movie just for the way they handled that. I loved yeah. that scene. Perfectly played. I, I, yeah. I agree. That, it was really well done. And really, the character here, played by Michael Caine, Preston, is revealed in the conversation he has with his superiors, a lot like Harry Palmer. The entire segment is to show that Preston is actually pretty good at what he does and is willing to take chances for the cause and that others around him, some at least, can believe in him. Yeah, going back to the Harry Palmer references, I mean, some of these little quips he has at his superior. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just outright up yours yeah. to a superior, and, and it's even taking what Harry Palmer's insubordination even a step further, which is it's fun to watch. Yeah, but it again establishes that Preston is more of a rogue agent, and we see so is the Soviet General Gavorshin. He's acting as a rogue leader. And if we Bond fans recall the 1983 Bond movie Octopussy, we remember that a rogue Russian general wants to explode a nuclear device at a U.S. Army base in Germany. Again, to erode the NATO alliance. Well... <laughs> okay, so, yeah, this is a similar plot to what we saw in Octopussy. Yeah. And it's intriguing me that Octopussy came out a year before Forsyth released this book, and four years before the movie. And when I say Octopussy, I'm talking about the movie. Yeah, right, right, right. And so it is interesting looking at that going like, so did Octopussy give Forsyth the idea to do what he did here? Did he already have the idea before the movie came out? Um, it was Octopussy was based on a short story by Fleming, so who knows? A little but, bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's, you know, the main plot there, a lot of it does have some similarity. Yep. So we talk a little about Bond here in Octopussy. We know that Pierce Brosnan couldn't do James Bond because of his contract with Remington Steel. Interestingly, Remington Steel ran from October 10th, 1982 through February 17th, 1987. And this movie, The Fourth Protocol, was made just after Remington Steel ended and was released August 28th, 1987. Now, Pierce would not be Bond till 1995 in GoldenEye because Dalton, as we recall, was doing Bond through License to Kill, 1989, when there were legal issues over the next Dalton movie, and by the time everything was straightened out and figured out, Dalton didn't want to commit to multiple Bond movies, so we had that six-year delay, as we recall. Ugh. <laughs> Until Goldeneye. That's getting, that's getting to be commonplace. Yeah, yeah, more and more so. So finally, we get Pierce Brosnan in Goldeneye, 1995. Dalton's first appearance as James Bond was 1987 in The Living Daylights, the same year that The Fourth Protocol was released. All right. Yeah, now, the when you talk about these dates, it is interesting to see, okay, this, Pierce is playing kind of the anti-Bond, right, in that he's playing the villain, but there are a lot of things that he does here that are kind of Bond-like. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, in terms of the how he attracts the women how he you know he has to defuse or, or set up bombs and stuff like that and it's interesting to watch that because he's playing the opposite of what a bond character would be but there's a lot of similarity because both sides really if you think about what when bond's doing something who he's who he's against is trying to do the same thing bond's doing just for his yeah. country and we just or, had we just had a nice conversation with robert davi who played of course Fran sanchez in license to kill and he was saying the same thing, that that Fran Sanchez was a mirror image, the mirror reflection of Bond, that they were both very powerful, 
both very similar in what they were doing. And that's the case here, too, like you're saying, Tom. So it, here in reality, there were agreements in place among all the powers of the world regarding nuclear bombs, armaments, delivery systems, and so on. But this agreement in this movie is a fictional agreement. But Wait, when you say this this agreement, what is what agreement are you talking about? Yeah, there is a there is a written uh, arms agreement in this movie, and the fourth protocol is part of this arms agreement, and it, and this has to do with the delivery mechanisms or how you can deliver a bomb. This this is how crazy this world is, right? They have agreements as to how you can deliver a bomb. It could be delivered by a missile. It could be delivered by a plane, dropping a bomb, a, a submarine, whatever. But you can't intentionally assemble a bomb like he's doing here. <laughs> yeah, but so... And, and, and explode it, detonate yeah, it. Yeah, but... But in this movie, you don't ever get defined what the pro- the fourth protocol is. No, you, you really don't. Forsyth really defines it in the book, but they don't in the movie. Right. So, so in the intro, they've got this thing talking about the the arms agreement, and there were these different protocols, yeah. and then the fourth protocol. But they never say what it is in the movie, which yeah. to me is confusing. Yeah. Uh, because we don't know that. You couldn't deliver it. Yeah, however. and that that actually is what it is, right? And, and it, yeah. of course, it's a fictional agreement in the movie, but it's pertinent to the movie, obviously. And so that's one and of the so main, fictional they don't bother to define it. It's one of the main four four protocol main protocols in there is based on this 1968 real nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Again, this part here in the movie is fiction. But it's an agreement between nuclear powers that nuclear weapons will only be delivered to their target by conventional means. So that's that's how crazy the world is. And again, fictitious agreement in the movie. So basically that's the plot line. Brosnan is playing this Russian, a major Valerie Petrovsky, who is a top Russian agent and selected for this mission to plant and explode the nuclear device near the American base in England. His cover name while he's in England, and of course he speaks perfect English, is James Edward. Given that it's Pierce Brosnan, I would expect that. <laughs> yeah, James Edward Ross. This is a top secret mission, as we said, and even the KGB top officials don't know about it. And components of this bomb will be delivered to Petrovsky in separate drops while he is in England, which we will see happening. So, and I really like the way they did that yeah. in this movie. Yeah, I, I did because too. Because you've got, you've got all the different pieces and the way they disguise how the different pieces come together so they can get assembled. It, it, I was really intrigued by the way they did that. Yeah. I just thought that was and really it, good. It looked possible. And, and that's what you want to be right? There's your, you don't have to have a willing suspension of disbelief here. You think, yeah, okay, this could be possible and scary at the same time. Yeah. I just don't know how the radioactive material, that's a different issue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have Michael Caine playing John Preston. Yeah. And he gets reassigned by his boss to a lesser job in C5. He's got to cover airports and ports, and yeah. he's not happy about it. No. But it's actually a stroke of fortune because in his new role, he becomes intimately involved with this plot and almost any other agent probably wouldn't have caught on to what was going on here, right? It's just, he just happened to be assigned to this and it kind of fell into his lap. So one component of the, of the drop happens at a shipyard port. Yeah. And there's a courier that gets hit by a bus 
and this one component is found in his bag that he was carrying and they almost didn't catch that it was there and so because he was assigned to airports and ports he figures out what the what's up with this thing and starts to realize what the plot is so it's it's very very cool how it seems like a yeah. almost a, oh you're getting demoted over here turns up saving the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah so clearly this is it's a secret mission as we know for petrovsky and this guy the chairman of the kgb gavorshin is the guy who's driving this he knows what's happening so the KGB powers below this chairman, like General Karpov, the deputy head of the KGB, are undermined as well. Nobody else knows about this thing. And that's brought out in the conversation with Karpov and Pavel Petrovich, Ned Beatty's character, which is another thing we'll talk about. <laughs> Petrovsky, yeah, we're going we're to talk about Ned Beatty's character a little yeah, bit later. Petrovsky yeah. is sworn to secrecy, of course, and will report only to and through this chairman. The Americans don't know what's going on. And in the beginning, British intelligence, the stand-in boss as the acting director general, dismisses it as Preston tries to impress upon him that the component that he recovered at the port can only be used in a nuclear explosive device. So there's a lot of intrigue in the movie from every angle and every side. So his boss wants to just say, eh, you're just, nah, no, I'm dismissing that. No good. Sorry. And and we get to see Michael Caine's character have this insubordination, but being forceful about it, which is which is really well done. Now, if this plot is so secret that only a couple people know about it, yeah. And if Petrovsky is going to be secret, yeah. And he's not supposed to be known as to the fact that he's Russian, right? And they want the Americans to take the blame. Why is he carrying a Makarov pistol? That would identify him as a Russian. It just totally doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. With, they had a lot of other things right, but this one, I'm like, Should really? have had a Walter PPK, a German pistol. Something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Something other than a Russian one. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. There's plenty of killing here, too, so don't worry about that, folks. If you want killing in a spy movie, <laughs> you got the first killing within five minutes of the movie, as we said. We see Brosnan, who later becomes Bond on the British side a few years later, being this brutal Russian agent killer who knows that he must kill along the way for the sake of the mission. He has no problem with that. There's plenty well, of... I'm not sure that he didn't have a problem with that because there's, mm. there is a scene in here where he's talking to Irina and he asks her how many people are going to die from this and she tells him. And the look on his face was kind of a... oh. But, I mean, he goes, he's still going to go on with it, but... Yeah, hey, maybe, I don't know. I interpreted it as he thought it was going to be more. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like, shit, only a few thousand? <laughs> I'm doing okay. all this for that? No, I don't, right. I'm not positive, though, but, that, okay. but there's a lot of subterfuge here, obviously, going on during this with all these layers of deceit. And, like you said, he might kill thousands with this bomb, and... This is a role for him that you got to see, I think. He got Pierce Brosnan as a Russian agent, and he's doing a pretty damn good job of it, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Petrovsky is to await certain words on a Russian radio station, and when he hears these words, he's to flip the switch on the bomb, then press the button, and theoretically, he has two hours to get clear of the area before it explodes. So, again, he's got to listen to a signal 
for the bomb to be set off to explode. Again, similar to the man who knew too much and so on with the music, etc., as we had said. So that's pretty cool. Now, when you t- when you just were talking about this voice on the radio, mm-hmm. right, that he's got to listen for, he's got to hear these words on this radio station, We sometimes we'll sit there and say, okay, well, they're not just going to let anybody play this voice on the radio. Who yeah. was it yeah. that was the voice? Yeah. So we poked around a bit, and we found out that the author, Frederick Forsyth, who wrote the novel, <laughs> is actually doing the voice on the radio we hear. That's cool. <laughs> and, you know, it's the, the Brosnan's character is waiting to hear it so he can arm the bomb. And it's the author who's telling him the, the secret code word, yeah. which was I just those little tie ins are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's our mysterious voice who makes a, an appearance here. I, I think that's pretty cool that they did that. It wasn't some voiceover guy, whatever. Here's the author doing it. That's pretty cool. All right. This movie's got some beautiful panoramic snow scene shots up front, supposedly Russia and very good close-up shots of the bomb components assembly and just paying lots of attention to detail in these shots. The cinematographer here is Phil Mayhew. This guy has done a ton of movies, including two of the best Bond movies, GoldenEye with Pierce Brosnan's first outing as Bond in 1995, and later, 2006, he did Casino Royale. Fantastic. You can check out some interviews of him on YouTube. He is fascinating to listen to. So this guy. And he's also one heck of a cinematographer. Yeah, he is. The opening shots of a sunset and of cars driving on this cold, snowy road and through an armed checkpoint, it just sets the tone for the movie. It's a cold spy thriller in every regard. And the sense of wonder. let Let me stop you there. So you say it's a cold spy thriller. And so we had a similar feel of this cold and desolate stuff yeah. in Billion Dollar Brain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which starred Michael Caine. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. So he's good in these cold movies. <laughs> yeah, it is. So there's something good here. And this, this whole upfront scenario creates a sense of wonder and intrigue. And you're immediately brought into the movie, which I think is is one of the tricks that is terrific when it works. Something ominous, you know, is going to happen. You just feel yeah, it. And, absolutely. And, you just you just go like, okay, what's up? <laughs> yeah. And when you feel it in a movie, I think that's really good than just thinking it. You just, you really feel it. So very well executed. Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. And the first view we get of Petrovsky, Brazen as a Russian spy, is cold. He looks cold. Authentically a Russian he looks good as a Russian. And he meets with this, a general in an austere, chilly, ice-frosted, windowed office. That movie is cold. I like yeah, it. Yeah, this, this movie is cold. But I actually was just cracking up when I saw this because the first time we see Petrovsky, yeah. Brosnan looked like he was 16. He, he's <laughs> young. He looks young. He, he, looks he young. looked like a kid. I mean, he was really 34 when he made this movie. Yeah, I mean, but that after. first shot of him, he really looked young. Yeah, and he did take his hat off, and he, you know, yeah. and I'll say, put in quotes, he aged with that, so he <laughs> he looked a little closer to his age. But he really looked young, especially when you think about, you know, he's still making movies now, and so to see to see him back then, boy, did he look like a kid here. He did, he did, and of course, this is even after Remington Steele. So I mean. Yeah, he, he was 
He still he yeah, was young though. But I mean, not, I haven't watched Remington Steele in forever, so I don't really remember how young he looked in that. But yeah, he looked really young here. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. I thought perfectly so because he was supposed to be this hot young agent for Russia. Right. Right. They're picking the best guy. Well, they're picking the best guy, and they needed a guy who wasn't old in that role. So yeah, yeah. This is not a high action spy thriller like we're used to with all the James Bond movies and the Mission Impossible movies. It's not like that. This is more along the lines of true espionage and the planning, details, phone tapping, secret observation posts, dead drops, multiple agents, all enhances the story. So Yeah, it kind of has a Jean Le Carré feel to it. Yeah, yeah. There really is a lot of dialogue in the movie, but the dialogue generally is meaningful and it ties in tightly with the unfolding of the plot so at one point in talking about the movie years later in his autobiography michael kane said something like this about the movie we were making a talking when it should have been a moving one (laughs) (laughs) yeah there was a lot of dialogue too much talking (laughs) nonetheless though we think the dialogue plays off well here and doesn't really drag things down so Yes, you're not getting the heavy action sequences that we've become accustomed to in spy movies, but this is a solid espionage thriller. And, you know, I've said many times that these spy movies have gotten to be too much big action movies, Mm -hmm. and I like when there's more of the espionage stuff in there, and this movie has that. Yeah, it does. All right, now, you mentioned that we have this cold setting and you say it's supposed to be the Soviet Union or Russia, but it was actually filmed in Finland. (laughs) Now, that cabin that Petrovich lives in is well done. I don't know where that part was filmed, but the icy cold, the snow, the sound, the light flooding through the window as Petrovich and Karpov talk, it's all perfect. Yeah, it really is. It is perfect. Great. Yeah. Now, most of the movie was filmed at various UK locations, some at Pinewood Studios. Royal Albert Hall even makes an appearance, as it did in the 1956 Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And it also was briefly in The Ipcris File and about 98 other movies, I think. <laughs> it's a star. It's a star. <laughs> yeah. Tom and I, we, we love filming locations. So this shot where we see Petrovsky meet Irina on the steps of the Royal Albert Hall was taken from the exact same spot as what we see in the Ipcris file. So that's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Again, yeah. another Michael Caine movie. Michael yeah. Caine must love being shot at the Royal Albert Hall yeah. or outside the Royal Albert Hall. Well, it's been the star of about 100 movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I mean, locations are so important to bringing the story to life. That's why we like them so much. And those teams who do the scouting trips to find these terrific locations, I mean, really, that's that's an art all by itself. That's just terrific stuff. So the American Air Base is really RAF Upper Hayford Air Base, but I don't think that's still operational. This was also the base that Eon Productions used for filming part of Octopussy. Here they use the name RAF Baywaters, which is a nod to RAF Bentwaters, which is a real airbase. All right. So. They shot the London Underground at Charing Cross, Green Park, and Oldwich stations. There is a scene where Michael Caine, as John Preston, is standing on the tracks when he was trailing someone, Berenson, as we mentioned before. That was shot at Colchester Station. So they're using real locations, which is I, I love when they do that, and it's just not all studio stuff. I like yeah, that. and Charing Cross also has a key 
is a key station in Skyfall as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a some place that they like to shoot uh, movies. Yeah. The cinematography is very good throughout the movie with interesting lighting, especially textures, all with this sense of drama. It's, it's excellent. Phil Mayhew is a master. He's been nominated nine times for awards. He's won five, including Best Cinematography for a 2020 film, Officer Down, through the Midwest Action Fest. So the cinematography here is good. So pay attention to that. Adds a lot to the movie. There's some gratuitous scenes, like the one with Ken Philby in the beginning of the movie. Ken Philby, as wait, we you said, say, wait, you're calling that gratuitous. I actually think it's what allows us to kind of feel like maybe this really happened because we know who Kim Philby was. Why don't you tell us who he was? Yeah, I mean, he was a real spy, as we mentioned before, who worked for British intelligence for 30 years, but was feeding information to the Soviets at the time as a double agent. He was part of the Cambridge Five spy ring, but considered to be the most successful at selling secrets to the Soviets in real life. He defected to the Soviet Union in 1963. Really? I mean, so he was a real guy. He disappeared from Beirut, where he was assigned. So in this movie, he makes this brief appearance in the beginning to tell us that he is part of this plot with General Gavorshin to explode this device. That's the purpose of his appearance. Yeah, now, well, and I also think I also think it's to give us a sense of realism. Because yeah. especially I mean, when this movie was made, people would have definitely known who Kim Philby was. Yeah, yeah. But they wanted to give a sense of realism, but the way they managed his presence on the screen and then lack of presence on the screen was not realistic. And that, I mean, it wasn't real. It wasn't what happened to him in real life. I mean, he basically, he drank himself to death in real life because he was, became dis, disappointed with the Soviets later in life so here he's got a short part but it is to establish that he and someone else general gavorshin has planned this nuclear bomb plan and so another gratuitous shot i think is during a the drop in a bathroom petrovsky receives a radio from someone else who's in the bathroom and then another guy happens to see this transfer now if i were the other guy who sees the transfer I'm not going to think about that much after, right? I'm going to, whatever. Not, it's not that weird a situation. But yeah, it really wasn't. No, but your Petrovsky, who, again, is Brosnan, uh, played by Brosnan, he follows the guy who saw this, and he is focused on getting his mission done as he, you know, is supposed to be, and he doesn't want to take any chances. So No loose ends, Dan. No yeah. loose ends. Right. So he talks his way into the car with this guy, and there's some kind of sexual stuff, innuendos, suggestions. Yeah, we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk more about I want to talk more about that a little bit later. Yeah. And, and then he kills him, right? <laughs> that seems to me to be more risky than the outside chance that this guy is going to report that someone he saw had a radio that he gave to someone else in a bathroom. I mean, it's like, you're going to kill this guy in a car. That's a little more risky. Anyway, this scene, I think, could have been skipped. But... I dis- I totally disagree with you, Dan. Okay. But it shows... Okay, it shows something that I yeah. often critique in a Bond movie, that Bond sometimes does not eliminate his enemies, which sometimes, like in Tomorrow Never Dies, the pre-title when he did not kill the pilot in the back seat, sometimes it backfires on him. So here, ah, he's not taking that chance. 
Oh. Yeah, and I, I think he's covering all of his bases. No loose ends. Somebody saw him take something from someone, so he's got to eliminate that person. So to me, it made sense that Petro- the character of Petrovsky, uh-huh. as careful as he was, would just kill that guy. Yeah. Now, yeah. you mentioned the fact that this was a component drop. And in our episode we did on Dr. No, we talked about how we like to see spy stuff in a movie. And you talked about some of this earlier, some of the things. But, you know, the stuff that spies do in their everyday job. Mm -hmm. And here in the fourth protocol, there are other classic spy things that we see. Yes, we have the drop here. And we actually, there's multiple drops that happen. But we also see lock lock picking, having to shape the pick. Um, We get a really nice example of how a team of spies work together for surveillance from the way this van operates that's in this movie. I'm not going to give away what happens here. Yeah, that's true. The duties get split up. So it's really interesting to see how they do that. And from the espionage perspective, we see a false flag operation which is the main plot where the Russians want to deploy the nuclear bomb but make people think it was the Americans that did it. So that's the false flag part, thinking that the flag of the Americans was doing this bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, talking about tiebacks into James Bond movies, I think about The Man with the Golden Gun, where Scaramanga has to put together the gun, shaping it from ordinary objects. Okay. Here in the fourth protocol, the components for the nuclear bomb, as we mentioned, are concealed in ordinary objects and then created into the the nefarious thing, the golden gun and the man with the golden gun or a nuclear bomb here. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then one other thing that I really liked in terms of callbacks to Bond here was that Petrovsky's motorcycle had a license plate plate on it that says C700. And it either says OBL or DBL. I couldn't couldn't quite tell which letter that was, whether it was an O or a, or a D. <laughs> yeah. But and I, and I froze fr- freeze framed in. I just couldn't figure it out. Yeah, if but, it is a DBL, that could be yeah. short for double. Like That's right. this is a 007 double, only yeah. backwards since That's he right. works for the Russians. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, I See, think that's seven, good. <laughs> seven zero zero. Now it's it's the backward double oh seven. Yeah, so, and uh, and yeah, you know, it's double it's backwards because he works for Russia. I and, like it. And if, right. and if they didn't really do that intentionally, I hope somebody takes credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's look at the direction of this movie. This is directed by John McKenzie, who had worked with Michael Caine before on Beyond the Limit, nineteen eighty three, and will work again with him after this movie on Quicksand 2003. Mackenzie also worked before with Pierce Brosnan on The Long Good Friday in 1980. So we have some connections here with the actors and the director. The direction in this movie is solid. There are plenty of great camera angles, one through the sunroof. We mentioned that he killed that guy in the car, Tom. One through that sunroof of the car that Petrovsky is in after he commits this gruesome act that we mentioned a minute ago. And that's cool. And we see him cranking the roof closed at the end of the scene. It's kind of neat. I kind of like that. <laughs> you know, Now, today, if you push a button and the thing would yeah, close, yeah, yeah. here he had to crank it. Yeah. The assembly of the bomb is a great scene, both in camera shots and sound. Yeah, really they, nice. they did that one really well. Yeah. Is the panoramic scene in the beginning we mentioned is beautiful, well lit, beautiful. The cabin we said that that scene with uh, Ned Beatty's character Petrovich executed perfectly in terms of camera work, lighting through the window in the cabin, and the interaction between Karpov and Petrovich 
Ray McAnally and Ned Beatty, respectively. Yeah, and there's this scene where there's a piece of paper that is has been written on and yeah. torn off, but you can read the impression on the paper. Yeah. So the character writes on a piece of paper, and you can see the impression of it that gets left behind, which almost causes a problem. <laughs> now, given that Petrovsky killed the guy just for seeing somebody hand him a uh, radio. Yeah. I don't, w- wouldn't he have just destroyed the whole night notepad after writing down what he wrote down? Yeah, wouldn't he know? Uh, <laughs> well, unless he wanted uh, yeah. the character Irina to know. I don't, know. I, I don't think so. I mean. Nah, I don't think so either. I mean, he's this hot agent spy, right? They, he got handpicked for this assignment. He wouldn't know that, hey, I'm writing something on a piece of paper. It might be visible on the next sheet if I just, like, scratch pencil over it and I could read it. I mean, he should know. He should have known. <laughs> That's all. We'll leave it yeah, at that. The thing I did really like was after he found out his instructions, he does make love to her first. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, very Bond-like. Yeah, very Bond-like. Yeah. And we mentioned the scenes with the van and the surveillance and stuff. Yeah. There's also this stakeout that happens at a cafe. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's it's really well done, and time passes. So it's not like they get there to watch the cafe, and so in so many movies, you know, within three minutes, whatever action happens. They have to sit there for a while, mm-hmm. and they're waiting for whatever happens to happen. Yeah. And so, in the meantime, while this is happening, we get a clearer idea of what's really going on. Yeah. As our MI5 guys are learning what's happening as it unfolds. You got that same sense in Funeral in Berlin, too, when they were waiting for that event, right? Yep. Crossing the wall and stuff. So, that's pretty, it's pretty neat. So, the, the production designer here is Alan Cameron. And these production sets here are beautiful. And he, too... It has a Bond connection. Fast forward to 1997, and he's the production designer for Tomorrow Never Dies, starring, of course, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> yeah, so there. Back to direction. There's a very chilling scene where General Gavorshin, the chairman of the KGB, played by Alan North, is shredding documents. And as he is shredding each document, we get a flashback to the event that happened that he is destroying the evidence for. <laughs> I thought that was really that was really well done. I yeah, hadn't seen that before. When I saw that scene where the where he's shredding stuff, it's a strip shredder. So things are coming out in shred in strips. Yeah. And then I think about today it would be a crosscut shredder. Oh yeah. So everything would be a lot in smaller squares. It'd be fairly easy. Those strips were relatively wide. Yeah, yeah. You could assemble that, them. You could definitely reassemble that, which, you know, I'm just kind of thinking, oh, there, there's definitely a sign of the times in that in that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the end scenes build in climax and anticipation, and we might guess what is to happen, but we're waiting with bated breath. We want the good guys to win. This also is very well directed and executed, really without a hitch, smooth and engaging. So let's shift to the music here, Dan, because we have Lalo Schifrin yeah. doing, doing the music. And he, of course, is the person who wrote the theme to Mission Impossible. And it is, it's success, it is successful 
is you really don't pay attention to the music. It's there, it sets the stage, but it doesn't slap you in the face. Mm -hmm. It just seems to fit naturally, which is good. And if you listen carefully, about an hour and 52 minutes in, there's sounds a little Mission Impossible-ish here. Yeah, I thought so too. There is a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now maybe it's more like The Outer Limits by Dominic Frontiere, but I wonder if they knew me, each other. I'm sorry. I wonder if they knew each other, Dominic Frontiere and. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but the, it definitely had a little bit of that feel to it. Mm -hmm. But if Schifrin's doing the music, you know, you the music's handled well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about the actor stand. Yeah, we mentioned the, who's in it before. Michael Caine as John Preston is just brilliant, as he always is. Again, a rogue agent disgruntled with the stand-in boss and the boss with him. He plays his role out well and is 100% all in on the mission, knowing what to do and when. Just like the Ipcris file. Preston is a very believable spy. Caught in a situation and doing everything and anything he can to prevent the explosion from happening. He's a more mature and weather-beaten agent than he is when he's playing Harry Palmer, but very similar in role, attitude, demeanor, and respect for authority, or lack thereof, uh, versus getting well, the job done. One, one thing that's different here, though, is if you think about in the Ipcris file, yeah. he has the insubordination or the... the I don't like authority feel to him. Here, this guy who he's so insubordinate to is filling in for somebody who's yeah. sick. Yeah. So he doesn't feel like he's really the authority person who he's, you know, mouthing off to. Yeah, yeah. Even though he's filling in and he wants the job, though, because the other guy's not going to probably return. So Michael Caine's like, he still is worried. Hey, but I, he, you're right. I don't think he's thinking, eh, you know, you're, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. All right. So he's a bit Bond-like here, too, in the in his role. This is really Michael Caine's second espionage movie in two years. He did The Whistleblower in 1986, and then this, this movie, The Fourth Protocol, in 1987. So he was in a lot of spy movies, really, and, and he was so popular because of The Ipocrites File. I've seen The Jigsaw Man, too, which is a 1984 movie, too, which he's also in, and it's an interesting movie. It's a little weird. I don't know if we'll do an episode on it or not, but... It, it, it's worth a watch, too. It's it's a kind of a well-done movie. Now, there's very little romance in this movie, and I'm going to yeah. stick on romance. I mean, in fact, probably no romance. There's an attempted romance by one of the characters who wants to cheat on her husband. Yeah. But otherwise, it, there's just a sex scene between Petrovsky and Irina, and she was assigned to assemble... She's a Russian agent assigned to assemble the bomb. Mm. And it's interesting because when she first gets there, she's telling him no. <laughs> and then after a while, she does hop in bed with him. And it's it's brief. And there is some flesh shown on the screen, uh, just the nipple of Irina. So the, there was an earlier scene where a woman is married and they live next to the American air base. In the same she's complex in the car as his. Yeah. I'm sorry? In the same complex as his. Yeah, same complex as him. And she definitely wants him sexually. Yeah. She leans over to him in the car, mouth ready, and asks him as she's sliding her hand up his thigh. Hmm, I wonder what that meant. <laughs> Do you get bored too, Jimmy? Bored stiff? Okay. <laughs> we get it. All right. 
But he refuses her and gets out of the car, much to her disappointment. Now, his cover here is that his wife's going to be joining him. Yeah, right. So it didn't seem totally unnatural that he would he would deny her in that scene. Yeah. He plays a pretty damn good spy, I have to say, and a pretty good bad guy. <laughs> I mean, here, he's a bad guy. The movie's worth watching just to see how good Pierce Brosnan is in this very different role for him. Well, see, you keep saying different role, but I actually look at Petrovsky and Bond as fairly similar. Yeah, but not yet. At- he's not Bond yet. Right. Right? So... Right, so, but you say it's a very different role for it, him. It, it's different than Remington Steel. It's different than which he just came off of. I mean, well, that's true. Okay, so, uh, okay, I get, I get where you're I'm going, going with that. And, okay. and, and, and not, of course, he's going to be Bond, but he's getting some of his roots of Bond here as a spy in, in this movie. Right? We've seen him in the Thomas Crown Affair and, and so on, but he here he is icy cold in in this outing, and he's scary. He's calculating. He's merciless, really, in this movie. It it really showed a much deeper dimension, I think, to his acting ability than Remington Steele, which was really a much lighter character. You're kind of a flippant character. Yeah, there, yeah. Know? Here, Pierce Brosnan is deep and dark and unforgiving. He also is sharp enough to know what the plan ultimately is <laughs> when things start happening, which is cool. We have to remember that this is Pierce Brosnan as a spy eight years before he becomes a spy for MI6 (laughs) as James Bond. So he's a spy and a darn good one here and a bad guy and a darn good bad guy and dedicated (laughs) to the mission to the very end. It sounds familiar to the very end, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. This is a great outing for Pierce Brosnan in a really underrated spy movie, I think. I'll give you that he gives a really good performance here. And one of the reasons that I say that is you mentioned earlier that Michael Caine said there was too much talking in this movie. Yeah. But you don't get a lot of talking out of Brosnan's character, Petrovsky. Right? Yeah. He actually doesn't say a lot through his mouth. Yeah, that's but true. Visually, with his facial expressions, he says a lot. Like that scene when Irina tells him how many people are going to die from this bomb. Yeah. He doesn't say much to it, but as I said, yeah. his face says... You know, we had different interpretations of what his face said, but his face said a lot when he did that. So Pierce pulls that off very well with actually not that much dialogue, given how much dialogue's in the movie. Yeah, that's a good point. And there are plenty of other very solid British actors in the movie here as well, which really rounds out the cast. We've mentioned Julian Glover, who was in For Your Eyes Only in 1981 and in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989 with Sean Connery. Michael Goff, who among many appearances in movies played Batman's Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred, in several Batman movies from 1989 to 1997. Yeah, and Batman's butler has multiple roles here. And you got Michael Goff here playing Sir Bernard Hemmings, but you also have Batman's butler because Michael Caine played him. Yeah. So, Batman's butler appears twi- in two different people in this movie. Yeah, right. Uh, Goff was in Batman, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. And Michael Caine played Alfred in The Dark Knight, 2008. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And then you got Ian Richardson and Ray Man- Annerley, as we said before. A lot of good people. Ned Beatty, 
is a bit of an outlier here as I I can't get the 1972 movie he was in Deliverance out of my mind <laughs> so but he he does a decent job here as an associate of the Russian KGB head guy I totally disagree with you Dan <laughs> okay right I am I am normally a big Ned Beatty fan I think he's really really good and so be, besides playing Bobby in what was his first movie, which was Deliverance, which is what you said you can't get out of his, yeah, your head, yeah. he was fantastic in one of my favorite movies, Silver Streak. Yeah. It was really, really good in Network as well. And almost every other role, I remember him playing. However, here in The Fourth Protocol, I thought he was miscast. Okay. Because in this movie, the characters don't try to put on a Russian accent. It was really part of the direction here. And at times it felt to me like Beatty was trying to do a Russian accent. Mm, it was like okay. he was going in and out and it didn't sound like his normal voice to me or accent to me. Mm. And to me it was inconsistent and I found it distracting and annoying. And so I was disappointed with this because like I said, I'm normally a fan of Ned Beatty's, but here I, it was either the way he delivered it or he was just the wrong casting for that role, um, which, yeah. again, disappoints me. I, I see what you're saying here. I mean, he, I said he's a bit of an outlier, and, and yeah, he, he does stand out as a character that is very different, played by an actor who's a good actor, but certainly you take notice here and you say, huh? Yeah, uh, so I, I get that part. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the accent mainly is what, what annoyed me with, with the way that role was played because it was very inconsistent. Yeah. Joanna Cassidy as the Russian bomb assembler, Irina, really fills a scene when she's in it. She is not on camera a lot, but when she is, she fills it up and you really get into her character. Tough, determined, and unstoppable. Except for some plans she doesn't know about. <laughs> yeah. Terrific on-screen presence. She's been in Blade Runner 1982, Who Framed Roger Rabbit 1988, The Package 1989, a TV series Six Feet Under, and a whole lot more. We'd love to have seen her play more, a bigger role in this movie. And boy, we would love to have her on a show because she would be a thrill to talk to, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. To me, she appears to be one of the reasons for the R rating of this movie. Yeah. Because there's really not a lot in the language or anything. And Bond movies try to keep PG and PG-13 ratings. They might give us a nip slip in many of those movies. But we get a lot more of screen time of Joanna Cassidy's naked breast. In fact, we get it multiple times. Yeah. So we're assuming that, you know, Ms. Cassidy's breast is the leading factor for the R rating. <laughs> and, we'll ask her. <laughs> yeah. And she does have a line here that was a callback to me for the movie You Only Live Twice. Okay. When she first gets to Preston's room, he says to her, she, she asks him about, you know, well, where are you going to sleep or how are we going to sleep? I don't remember exactly the words she used, but like there's only one bed. Yeah. And he says to her, well, we are husband and wife. And she replies back, I think not. <laughs> and I've got to believe that was influenced from the scene after Bond gets married and you only live twice. Ah, okay, yeah. And then my final comment on her here. When we first see her, she's carrying Louis Vuitton bags. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's first class all the way, including, in a sign of the times, those huge shoulder pads in her jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that 
was a very high-end way that women were dressing at that time. Yeah, yeah. And the appropriate bags, the appropriate attire was, you know, she was a great character. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was terrific. Many characters, of course, are Russian in the Fourth Protocol. And the funny thing is, none of the Russian personnel are Russian actors. And really, none of them put on a Russian accent at all. Uh, you said Net, maybe Ned Beatty tried. They all speak pretty good English. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, I didn't think Ned Beatty was trying to put on a Russian accent. I just... Yeah, if you, if you listen to it again, yeah. and, and you... Tr- to me, it's inconsistent. And it, some of the stuff sounds like it is... And, you know, maybe it's just name pronunciations or something that he's, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but the direction was we weren't going to do Russian accents. Yeah. And I think that was fine. All right. So we've looked at many aspects as to why you should watch this movie. So make sure you do and tell us what you think. I mean, did we get this right? Right. So take yeah, a look. And, and let me, let me, let me interrupt you here. Dan, okay. Because as, I said at the, as I said at the beginning, this is a movie you probably want to watch at least twice. Yeah. Right. I also wanted to mention, because you mentioned the scene where the guy sees Brosnan get handed the radio. Yeah. And then you said that there was some sexual parts to this thing. I think this movie was trying to make a couple of social points at the same time. Again, a sign of the times when this movie was made. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene where John Preston, Michael Caine's character, deals with some thugs who had been berating a black woman pretty much for no other reason than she was black. Yeah. And I loved how Preston handles it in that scene. And I think it said a lot about the topic without actually verbally saying anything about the topic. Yeah, that was a brief scene, but well done. Yeah, I remember that. So there there was a social thing there. The other social issue has to do with homosexuality, which might have also contributed to the R rating. This topic is addressed twice, in my opinion. The first is the blackmail from Karpov when he cho- when he shows Kreloff the pictures of his son to blackmail him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah, that's good. One. And Karpov's comment is, "You know, we don't tolerate these golden boys." Yeah. And then he talks about the punishment for being gay. Mm-hmm. The second time is when Petrovsky kills that guy who saw yeah. him take the radio. Yeah. That scene was done to make it look like Petrovsky and the guy were going to engage in gay sex. I think so. Yeah. But again, the guy gets punished for it Mm -hmm. by getting killed. Yeah. So this is a movie, even though it's a spy movie, I think it tries to interject some strong opinions about some social issues. It doesn't dwell on them, but the commentary is made. And, you know, in the case of the, we aren't going to tolerate racism, I thought was very well done. But the two different instances on the, the commentary on gay people, I, that one's, that surprised me given the commentary on, on you know, the racism. Yeah. So it, it seemed like in the one they were saying, yeah, you don't have racism, but, you know, and the other is homosexuality is bad is the impression I got of, out of it. Yeah, and you see more and more in movies today, especially, that they're working in social issues and things that are happening in the real world working their way into movies in general and certainly spy movies for sure all right so we talked about a lot of stuff here we think you should go see the movie tell us if we got it right here we'll put a link to the movie on youtube on our website spymovienavigator.com so you can see it as well so take a look i think you'll enjoy pierce brosnan's performance all right that's a wrap 
Tom and I ask you to subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. We're in all the social media stuff as well. Follow us to fun and adventure. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.